0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series pepsi where's my jet
1: no fine print that is a legit offer i don't care what anybody else says i'm gonna get that jet
0: today we're talking to documentary subjects john leonard and todd hoffman in a 1996 ad campaign pepsi claimed if you earned enough points people could get free sunglasses leather jackets or a hairier jump jet though they said it was tongue-in-cheek A 20-year-old college kid spotted the commercial didn't include a disclaimer. When he found a loophole that would let him obtain a $32 million plane for just $700,000, he and his friend began a campaign to claim the jet. When the soft drink maker realized there was a strong chance they'd have to make good on the fighter plane offer, they unbottled a counterattack. Pepsi, where's my jet? Recounts the landmark case of a kid who launched his own cola war and became the hero of a new generation.
2: I was like, Johnny, I ain't going to prison, and you ain't going to prison for this hero
1: jet. To me, I was going down, trying to slay some dragons.
2: Let's get the kid the jet.
0: I'm joined now by John Leonard and Todd Hoffman, the subjects of Pepsi, Where's My Jet? Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, guys.
1: Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for having us.
0: Just so people remember, John, you were the kid back in the 90s who sued Pepsi to get the Harrier Jump Jet, and Todd, you were his friend and financial investor in the effort. Now, Todd, you were not a 20-year-old community college student at the time. Would you agree that your friendship and trust in John was kind of an unlikely match
2: No, I wouldn't say it was an unlikely match because John and I had we were sharing something that we both loved in common. And that's how we met, which was mountaineering. We met in Alaska on a big climb and uh, we both had a similar love for the outdoors, wilderness, nature, et cetera, et cetera. And we forged our friendship uh, through some adverse conditions such as strong storms and weather where we would be stuck for days at a time. Uh, intense. So really, I think that uh, age and uh, persuasion and ethnicity and all those things are superseded when you're in conditions like John and I, uh, the conditions that we met each other under.
0: So, John, you watched the ad for Pepsi points and you spotted there was no disclaimer for the Jed. If the ad had featured like a tank, would you have gone through all this trouble?
1: You know, I don't think so. <laughs> there was just something so special about a hair Harrier Jet. I mean, it was like this, this special. It was, it was, for me as a kid, I think it was like the grand prize in Publisher's Clearinghouse. Um, but for a kid, it was like, wow, it really caught my attention.
0: So your position has always been that this was not a snafu when, where Pepsi created its own mess by forgetting the fine print. Uh, Todd, your position is that Pepsi was making a legitimate offer to the public <laughs> for a Harrier jet, right? That was your position.
2: Absolutely. That was my position. And that's to this day, I think what we've learned from this documentary is that it was an offer. They originally set the commercial at a much higher limit And the people inside the ad agency and the client, Pepsi, said, No, that's too many points. It won't be believable. And if you watch the entire documentary, that comes out through the execs at BBDNO who admit to that. So I think if somebody is saying, Don't run too many points because it won't be believable, then the opposite to that would be run less points so that it is believable. And they wanted it to be believable, it was believable. Uh, they didn't have any disclaimers. It was very clearly put out there. Harrier Jet, 7 million points. And in other parts of the world, like Canada, they did have the disclaimers. Now, BBDO is not a small agency that just got into the advertising because they have legal, they have all kinds of departments that they run these ads by before they go out. So I very clearly think it was an offer.
1: Where I'm at now is do I think it was an offer? Yes. But I also believe. It was intended to be, yes, in a joke. And it was thought that it would be so far out of reach that somebody in in my age bracket couldn't even fathom. And so was it an offer? Yes. Was there ever any thought that anybody could ever meet it? I don't think so. And I think that comes down to the fact that there were tons of me's out there. And after I tried to claim the prize, I got contacted from a bunch of folks that were actually trying to do the exact same thing. But I think the wild card in this whole thing was is that there was never a thought that somebody like me would ever be able to cross paths with somebody like Todd. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there was that math problem was probably never even in thought of. So I, I totally have taken and understand over time that people are like, hey, it's just a joke. Yeah. And I totally see that perspective but i think it was a little different than that yeah but it was just thought it could never happen so let's throw something fanciful out there and i think if you watch the show they talk about it how originally it was meant to be a 7 with a whole lot more zeros that's right but that didn't that didn't really work
2: right so we had the editor take out one of the zeros and make it 70 million and he said i still think that's hard to read
1: and we said okay he says, take out another zero. So we make it seven million. And so they made it down to something, but as they kept cutting off zeros, they didn't do the math. That's right. And um, as a kid, I had the time to do the math, I had the dreams to do the math. So.
0: And you were able to take advantage of that math. Um, So in the series, we do see the young version of you going through all these plans. Uh, They kind of add this absurdist element by having young you play you and kind of going back and forth with these quick cuts. What did you think when you first saw young you playing you on the screen interspersed with you?
1: Well, I I have to laugh a bit because I think it was accurately depicted at some level as being absurd. And when I look back and I think of my young (laughs) self, I think, what the heck? (laughs) <laughs> what what was I thinking back then? Because looking it through my you know now forty eight year old perspective, I'm pretty sure I probably would have seen it differently. Um, <laughs> it's fun. I think this is a fun story. I think it's important that I'm able to look back and, and laugh at myself. Um, and and this brings it out right. It, it's a it's a light story, and I I totally can see that perspective. Like, well, what was this kid thinking? Because half the time. I kind of think that myself now.
0: Yeah. So, Todd, uh, John came up with a bunch of business plans for you, right? The first plan was to, like, drink a bunch of Pepsi. Then it was to warehouse a bunch of Pepsi and hire a bunch of gig workers to, like, peel off the labels. Very much like in Willy Wonka when that dad hires all those people to peel off the, the candy bar wrappers, right? You were the business guy. So... How long did it take you to figure out all these plans wouldn't work? How many times did he come back and forth to you? Uh, I'm just curious to know, like you were like the real business guru here.
2: It didn't take long to figure out immediately that the idea was crazy, right? I mean, it was a crazy (laughs) idea. and, And when I asked John to explain the idea in more detail, the more John tried to explain it, the more ridiculous it seemed we're going to have we're going to buy millions of cans of, of soda and we're going to warehouse them all over the country and i just thought well that's all completely crazy so it didn't take long to figure out the idea didn't make sense but i did ask john to come up with his business plan for me and and as we developed this idea uh, i put up obstacles for john to get over if he could And if he couldn't, then it wasn't going to happen. But John was very tenacious and he seemed to find a a way over or around or under or uh, beside or whatever, every obstacle. And at some point I looked at this plan and I said, you know, I think I think we have something that's workable here.
0: Hmm. So you guys send the $700,000 check. You actually fly out and deliver it through that little mailbox hole. Uh, Pepsi responds with this letter containing vouchers for two cases of soda. Now, John, I almost feel like that's worse than just sending a letter with the check ripped up in it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think so, too. And people have asked since then, uh, immediately thereafter, now 25 years later, what were you thinking or what what did you think would happen? As crazy as that sounds, neither Todd nor I were actually thinking about what could happen or what would happen. And so, like, when this became a story to folks, it, like, kind of totally caught us off guard. And that seems ridiculous now, but it was like, wow, people are interested in this.
2: There wasn't the whole viral thing back then. So today, if we were involved in this, we might say, wow, this will go viral in two minutes. But back then, there wasn't the whole scene. So. It did catch us off guard that people that there was a buzz.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't two coupons for two cases of, of Pepsi. That's for sure. That wasn't um, something I would have thought of. I think there's, there's a couple things to the story. There's one thing that really of this whole thing that kind of just eats at me. And it's this fact that somehow the story has been understood that I was the one that sued Pepsi. And that's not what happened nope. in reality. And so they sent the two coupons for the two cases of Pepsi as kind of a, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And then not long after that, they were the ones that actually sued me in federal district court in New York. Now, that story has been told differently. And they say, wow, this young guy got lawyers and all this sort of stuff. And perhaps the reason why they sent that particular letter, and we learned this through the investigative work that was done while making this movie, but they had come through some means to an understanding that I was somebody that was found by a group of businessmen and put forward as their front person. And of course, that's so far from the truth. But again, putting myself in in their shoes or Todd and I putting ourselves in their shoes, I think this relationship that Todd and I had is so unfathomable at so many levels. Some other scenario made a lot more sense. (laughs) And if if, if they were back there and in their headquarters and trying to figure out how to respond to this kid. But really, their thought was that, no, it's not a kid. It's some group of people. Yeah. This was not an unreasonable response, I guess, if, if that was their mindset.
0: That's right. So, Todd, here we have John, this 20-year-old kid with a baseball cap, right? And then Pepsi sues him. And you must have thought, like, they're overplaying their hand here.
2: Not at all. No. I think this is how corporations react to things you know, as they say in the uh, documentary, once something gets sent to legal, it's out of everybody's hand. And what is legal going to do? It's it's what they do. This is exactly what they do. So they were they were not going to let this thing get past first base. They just wanted to squash it right away. And they proceeded accordingly to squash it in any way that they could. You know, they had PR guys out in front of this, you know, kind of repeating the same old tired little comments about what this was. And they had the legal team all over trying to get the forum in their backyard, which they succeeded at. And so, no, I think this is exactly what they do.
0: Switching gears, uh, this series doesn't just look at your past. It shows the two of you in the present day doing of all things, scaling a mountain in Antarctica together. Um, can we dig into this? How did this plan come together? Tell me about that.
1: So I think this story never, ever would have happened if it weren't for the way that Todd and I met, and that was in Alaska on a climbing trip. And I think it's it's really foundational to this whole story. And as we were talking about how to tell the story, and Todd and I had some influence in it, and our, our largest influence uh, probably in the whole story was early on when we had folks that were kind of pitching this idea of, of doing this project. I was, I was fairly hesitant about it or adamantly hesitant about, about doing anything. Cause it was in my past. Todd was like, you know, this was something that was really cool, fun, really fun part of his life. So we started talking about it and I said, all right, two rules. If we go down this road, one, it has to be fun. And two, We can't look like, um, you know, buffoons, hopefully. (laughs) Um, And I guess the jury's jury's still out on that. But as we started talking about what it could be, to me, it seemed that this story does not happen with this experience that Todd and I shared in the mountains. It was really, I mean, it was how our friendship started. It was how this deep friendship started, this mutual trust started uh, in each other. And to me, it made sense that it had to be part of this this story. And I, th- I think, though it's not a big part of it anyway, I kind of think it shows a lot about our friendship. And when you're in beautiful places doing something that is an adventure, I think that your mind is in a different place. And it's probably what really helped me is when uh, Todd and I first met, he was, his mind was in a different place. Yep. And he was probably a lot more open To this person that was 20 plus years younger than him, clearly a a dreamer. And I think it really allowed for our our friendship to, to take hold.
0: But it's on the ground in Antarctica that Todd reveals he has a serious health threat that he's chosen to postpone in favor of this trip.
2: And I said to these doctors, but I'm going to Antarctica. I can't have this operation. they were like, no, 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 this is not a wait and see type of thing. This is... We got to giddy up with this business. And I was like, I know, but I'm going to Antarctica.
0: We know his decision. Did you have second thoughts about taking him?
1: I did. And I, you know, this is something Todd and I both wanted to do. But that's a nice-to-have thing in life. My friend's health is not a nice-to-have thing. That's a, a very important thing to me. You know, Todd and I had a number of conversations. I said, Todd, like, if this means this risks your current condition in any way shape or form I'm not in for that yeah I will tell you that he held back a bit from me as to what it was but I um had a, a number of serious conversations I'm like nah, we're not we're not doing this if if this is going to be something that um, that's going to put uh, your health in, in greater jeopardy and it's funny after the fact he tells kind of some of the stories that he had with his his doctor and he was getting care from some Very, very great physicians. But I later came to learn when they approved his uh, going on this trip that it was likely under a bit of duress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yep. Um, So, Todd, we see you getting very emotional uh, reaching the summit, going on this climb with John. Can you talk about what you were feeling in that moment during that?
2: You know, I had been diagnosed with an illness before I left for the uh, trip. And uh I was kind of advised to stick around and get some things taken care of and not take the trip, but I decided I wanted to take the trip uh and then I would face the music uh, with my medical stuff when I got home and so I took the trip, and while I was on the trip, of course, I was thinking about what was waiting for me when I got home, which wasn't going to be any fun and a couple of times I thought about maybe I should just walk off into the night and keep walking, you know, but uh what I was thinking. When I got to the top, it was a whole range of emotions, Rebecca. It was so many things coming together. Oh, my God. What a dream come true. I had always dreamed about climbing in Antarctica. Uh, I know John had as well. We shared that dream, and it, it was... a. An interesting way how we got there, but we got there. The climb was a little bit harder for me just because physically I was hurting a little bit more uh, some days. And then I had decided to do what I wanted to do. And uh, I was with my buddy. I'm not a person that uh, lets my emotions show too often. I I can say I don't think I was able to uh, to contain myself then, even if I tried, you know, and John, of course, was very stoic, which kept me in check. He was like, yeah, it's a nice day up here. I was like, I guess (laughs) I'll stop crying now. (laughs) But uh, so it was a confluence of um, uh, lots of different emotions.
0: To keep the pressure on Pepsi, a third person joins the campaign. It's a young Michael Avenatti. He's currently in prison in California for separate convictions, one for extorting money from Nike, the other for stealing book proceeds from his most famous client, Stormy Daniels. Todd, we heard very clearly from you how you feel about Avenatti. And I'm curious about your reaction as to what Avenatti said about you in the documentary.
2: Well, it feels like a compliment to me when somebody that I, I really, uh, don't care for, doesn't care for me as well. (laughs) But I always thought he was a slippery, sleazy guy. Make no mistake about it. You know, Todd was a very shrewd guy and he was all about the dollars and the cents, right? And it was always about, at the end of the day, Todd Hoffman. And uh, our story is so much more than that, that I really, I really look at that as more of a sideshow. But, you know, be it as it may, that's, uh, that's an interesting part of our show because, he was somebody that was an unknown at the time. And yet he obviously had all the same qualities or lack thereof back then as he does. Now we picked up on that, or at least I picked up on that. And we parted company, you know, not too long after we met. And I, I look back on it and I go, well, you know, I might not have all the degrees and the education, but I've got a good sense for things. Uh, and I had red lights going off with this guy all over the place. And uh, and I look back now and I go, well, I was right Mm. in my
1: opinion. So I feel okay about it.
0: Now, John, at the time you said you were tight with Michael. You didn't stay in touch with him after all these years or did you?
1: You know, I didn't. And so, you know, and I think it's it's shown well in the movie. I mean, there was like some different planes, trains, honorable (laughs) real moments with he and I and travel around kind of doing this stuff. And I had totally lost track with them. And it wasn't acrimoniously or, or excuse me, there, there was no issue with it. Just our relationship for this thing ended and it was over. And then fast forward almost 20 years. And this was before stormy Daniels. I was at home Sunday night watching 60 minutes and he popped up on 60 minutes. And at the time he was involved in a very big lawsuit and 60 minutes highlighted that story. I was like, Holy mackerel, man, he's doing good. And then Like a year later, he was back featured on 60 Minutes in a big class action lawsuit that he was the lead attorney on against Kimberly Clark. And they had made personal protective equipment for surgeons and doctors, people in the ORs. And they had, I think, not done some good things. And he won another billion or $2 lawsuit. And so he was doing all this great stuff. And I was like, man, I should really reach out back and contact him. But then as he seemed to be like on this meteoric rise, I was like, I don't want to be one of those kind of guys yeah. that just comes back in when somebody turns in the big deal. And then again, boom, he hits the the stage again with this Stormy Daniels thing. And by that time, to me, it was just way too late to say, hey, Michael, remember me from, <laughs> you know, 1995?
0: There's one thing that strikes me, John, after all these years is that, and I will tell you, watching the film, you never articulate a really plausible reason for wanting a demilitarized jet. It seems like sort of a really about Pepsi screw up and this jet sort of just being like cool like you really never say like what are you gonna do with it aside from what you say in this potential business plan. So I have to ask you, is it the jet or was it about getting the jet?
1: You know it's that's a really good question. And again, I, I thought I, I touched on it in the series, but it I was totally captivated by the jet. Now If it was a million dollars, say, which clearly wouldn't make any sense, but if it was do something to win a million dollars, there's clearly um, kind of like a route forward with what you do with the million dollars. It's not as apparent with what would you do with a jet.
2: And, you know, they're crazy. Oh, we're going to do rides, you know, like it's a Ferris wheel ride, you know.
1: And Todd was like, best I know there's only one seat in that thing. (laughs) When I presented this idea to Todd for that original four plus million dollar Idea. He was like, okay, sure, but what are you going to do with it? (laughs) (laughs) And that was the first time I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a good question. And originally, when I saw it, I was like, holy mackerel, that thing's got to be worth $30 million. And I guarantee the Pepsi it would take to get that is less. And I just saw it as a kid, something that's really cool that had to be worth a lot that I could get through innovation kind of some hard work and some creativity and that seemed like a, a really good opportunity for me but then after I put this initial idea forward he's like okay you got a jet now what do you gonna do with it well I go I could build this into a venture a business venture and whatnot and anyway I went through that whole process and came up with a number of ideas and one of the funny things to learn out of this whole thing is one of the ideas and I had four ideas that I built this business plan off of how I was going to have a business venture. One of those was to use the jet and Hollywood productions and advertising stunts <laughs> and an individual after all of this, and there's stories behind it because it's, it, it's some levels related, but there's an individual who acquired a Harrier jet and does exactly that. Of course. Uh, uses them for Hollywood productions, air shows. Air shows was one of the things in, in my business plan. And then these corporate events and different things. And so at some level, those were ideas I had. And I get they're not groundbreaking ideas, but they're ideas I put together in my head at 19, 20 years old that actually came to fruition for somebody and seems to be a, a viable business. that's actually happened as we speak now.
0: I have to ask, John, uh, I was thrilled to see Cindy Crawford, the queen, in this series. Um, Were you disappointed, though, that she was in it, but she didn't, like, ardently come to your defense?
1: (laughs) You know, not at all.
0: (laughs) I mean, that commercial is so iconic. Every Halloween on Instagram, I see at least 30 people that go as me from that Pepsi commercial.
1: (laughs) These types of documentaries... It's not like they're walking around. And I I don't know other than asking her to be in it. I don't think she got anything out of it. And I just thought how cool that she was gracious enough with her time to say, yeah, I'll take part in this. No, I I just, I just was like, wow. I mean, she's a big deal. (laughs) And how cool of her to give a little of her time, how cool of her and generous of her to be giving of her time and I thought it was I thought it was really cool. And and at the end of the day, probably not a huge uh, upside for her. But I thought uh, I just thought it was really, really cool of her and, and speaks well of her.
0: There's a running bit throughout the series in which people take the classic Pepsi challenge. And John, you picked Coke. Todd, you said they both tasted like shit. They
2: both taste like shit horrible you're not, not going to do it i can't stand that stuff no that is, the outlier. you want to know which one tastes better which shit tastes better this shit or that shit i don't know it's shit to me they both taste like shit
0: do you think pepsi's executives were hoping against hope that you would pick pepsi after all
2: i have no idea because <laughs> i didn't even know i was going to do this uh whatever challenge i was sitting there doing the interview with the director and he pulled out a couple of couple of cups. And he said, okay, we're going to do this now. And it's going to be a blind tasting test. I didn't really mean to say that they both tasted like shit. I just meant that they (laughs) tasted like shit to to me. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I know there are millions of soda drinkers, probably billions all over the world, but you know, there's 48 grams of sugar in one of these sodas. And, and I'm kind of look after my health a little bit more than that. So I don't drink uh, soda. I don't remember the last time I've had one. I'm certainly not a snob or telling anybody else what to enjoy. I hope everybody else is enjoying their life as much as I'm enjoying mine. But they do both taste like shit to me. So I wasn't picking one over the other. So I was an equal opportunity uh, hater of soda.
0: <laughs> John. I just saw you took a sip of something from a blue can. What is that?
1: Well, you know, that's, um, and this isn't a setup, but <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a can of Pepsi. And, and nice. When I took the Pepsi challenge in the show, it was funny. Never in my life have I sat there and thought about what one I like better. <laughs> you know, I've never side-by-side side, had a, a glass of Pepsi and a glass of Coke in it. And it kind of got mad, I'm like, I don't even know what one should I choose. I got confused as to which one I like better. And for me, it could have just as easy as been Pepsi as, as Coke. And I can tell you to this day, and some people might think I should do something differently. I have never once when I've been at the grocery store or the 7-Eleven, I've never said, oh, I shouldn't pull a Pepsi out of the cooler because of this thing 25 years ago. I don't know what induces me on a particular day to pick a Pepsi or a Coke, but this story has surprisingly had no effect on that. And I regularly uh, drink Pepsi. So anyway,
0: you have known your side of this story for all of these years. But I'm imagining that this watching this documentary is the first time you've seen some of the people inside of Pepsi talking about their side of the story.
2: I remember my assistant saying, hey, Brian's on the phone. So I pick up the phone and it's sweetie. He says,
1: hey, somebody sent us a check for $700,000 for the Harrier jet.
2: So I was like, what?
1: Why?
0: What is it like for you watching this documentary, seeing the whole thing and seeing other people talk about you and your side of events?
1: There's a couple of things why this was so fun. One of them was obviously this time and this kind of continue this adventure with, with Todd, like you can't put a price on that, but neither Todd nor I ever really knew the true story and what was happening on the other side. Had we not done this project, we would never have, have known. And frankly, uh, the folks that were also very gracious with their time to join this that worked for Pepsi and BBDO, they probably would have never have known either. And my understanding is they really appreciated kind of understanding. And through this uh, series, they've seen me and my side and I was obviously able to see them and their side. And I uh, said last night when um, the director, Andrew Renzi sent me a text and said, Hey, the, the folks from Pepsi really liked how it turned out and are happy with it. I just said, it'd be super cool if we could all get together and, and uh, just have a have a a hay, you know. Have uh, some Pepsi. Yeah, they all, they all except, absolutely for, get
0: except for Todd, who we know will not drink that shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: you know, Pepsi with maybe a little rum in it or something like that. But I love all, all all three of the individuals seem to be really cool guys. Uh, the former chief marketing executive of Pepsi that was in the show, Brian Sweetie it's funny I would never say that they were my adversaries right but say in my 20 year old mind they were kind of my adversaries and at oh some I level think I'm they sure. thought
0: they were your adversaries John
1: <laughs> <laughs> so they, they both all, all three of them seem to be very interesting great people but Brian who was the chief marketing officer for, for Pepsi and I though different ages at some level we have a, a pretty similar life story that I, I thought was pretty cool and I'd uh, love to get together with him and Brian, the, the creative, head of creative as well. Just just seemingly cool folks. They've done great things and, and been super, super successful in the business. So.
0: John Leonard and Todd Hoffman, thank you so much for joining me. It was so much fun talking with you.
1: Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for the time today. It was really a pleasure.
0: That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to John Leonard and Todd Hoffman. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On!, Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.